Hello and welcome to this edition of the Blackwell Podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Joe Moran, author of On Roads, A Hidden History. Joe is reader in cultural history at Liverpool John Moores University, a post which clearly allows him scope to engage with subjects which fascinate him in our everyday world, subjects which most of us rarely think about. Thus, Queuing for Beginners, a cultural history of daily habits since the war, and, just out in paperback, On Roads, which looks at how a post-war love affair with roads, which reached its peak in the early days of motorways, in the late 50s and early 60s, gradually went sour, leaving us in a world of anti-road protesters, road rage, and speed camera decapitators. To get a glimpse of just how different things were, just half a century ago, you only have to look at the picture which accompanies the first chapter of Joe's book. A man, wearing no day-glow, high-visibility jacket, is brushing the motorway of debris, presumably in a quiet stretch between passing cars. And when those early enthusiasts of motorway driving did get the chance to put their foot down for the first time, many of them ran out of petrol. Never having had the chance before to drive fast, they were unaware that their cars would burn up more fuel when driving at speed. When I spoke to Joe on the phone, I started by asking him what had convinced him there was a book in The Secret Life of Roads. Well, I'm, I'm basically a historian of the everyday, so what I like to do is to take things that seem very banal and commonplace and perhaps um, not that interesting and to show that they do have these kind of hidden lives and histories. So I suppose it's hidden in the sense that it's, um, it's just kind of on the surface. It's so kind of obvious, the road, and it's something that everybody kind of even if they don't drive, they kind of live and work maybe within about 100 feet of a road. So it's mm. just so visible and so apparent that I think a lot of it is hidden just because it's sort of taken for granted, really. And um, that's what I tend to do is look at daily life, kind of routine life that doesn't seem to have a history because it's just something that you do again and again and again. So you don't actually see it changing. So mm. it's just kind of looking at those sort of that sort of invisible social change that, that people don't often know. So how then do you begin to look for those things which are, as you say, hidden in broad daylight? Where do you look for the the evidence that begins to form into a bigger picture? Well, I suppose I did two things, really, which is that I sort of did the kind of historical archive, um, kind of looking at the historical record. Although that's actually quite difficult because a lot of the stuff that I do uh, is, is quite ephemeral. So uh, the first the first thing I started I tended to start with was kind of newspaper archives like the the Times and the and the Daily Mirror and the Guardian where you will get things that perhaps don't don't end up in the his official historical documentation so mm. stuff about you know the opening of the M1 and the excitement mm. that surrounded that. But the other thing I actually did was um, although it's called a history that there's quite a lot of sort of social observation there so I actually mm. went to the places uh, which is slightly odd experience kind of uh, walked under Spaghetti Junction mm. which is a kind of vast area I actually spent a weekend at Newport Pagnell service <laughs> station which is um, the first ever <laughs> service station in in Britain mm. so so actually looking at the sort of architecture and uh, of those places and, and trying to sort of uncover that kind of historical evidence mm. as well. Mm. You mentioned the opening of the M1 in the late 50s, and I wondered if you could sort of try to recapture what the, what the mood of the country was at that moment, what, what the first motorway represented to, to British society at that point. 
yeah, well, there was huge excitement about motorways at that time, and that that was kind of the inspiration for the book, really, because it was so different. It's so different from now. When I just thought in the in the space of about fifty years, our our attitudes have, have changed so much. Uh, but there was real kind of excitement about it. I mean, people would take trips along the motorway in buses um, when it opened, and actually, people used. To, to come and watch it being built mm. you know, they, they would sort of take their deck chairs and have a picnic <laughs> by the side of the road while it was being built which obviously mm. nobody would do now <laughs> one of the um sort of the two set pieces that i used to to show the sort of changing attitudes about that um a couple of months before the m1 opened that the the chiswick flyover opened and and that was a there was a big road opening and the film star jane mansfield mm. came to open it and I contrasted that with when the Newbury Bypass opened um, 40 years later in 1999, which actually opened at half past one in the morning because they were worried about roads protesters and it, there were just a few people there. So just in the space of you know, 40 years, those kind of attitudes have changed so much. I really liked you also um, wrote about Mrs. Thatcher and I think it was the, the open or the completion of the M25 where she's upbraiding a, a news reporter and saying, well, it is a splendid achievement. You know, why can't you just come out and say it's a splendid achievement? Yeah, there was a lot, obviously, but that, that was that was a kind of interesting time because probably the, the Thatcher government was the last sort of great road building uh, government. And she was trying to sort of drum up uh, uh, excitement about it but um sort of the sort of cynical journalists weren't, weren't having any of it so she, you know, she, she actually mm. sort of upbraided a journalist and said you know stop stop moaning about it and, and actually this is a great achievement for britain i was really intrigued that you say there is a, a, a section of m45 where you can get as close as is humanly possible these days to recapturing a sense of what it would have been like to drive on those very first motorways tell me a bit more about that that's right. Well, I actually drove on that motorway. It was when the, the M1, the first section of the M1 was built, and they were a bit worried about the, the fact that um, all the motorists on the motorway would come off the, the motorway at the same point and go on to an A road. So they built this little spur off it. It was oh. the M45 that went sort of on the way to Coventry. But when they built the M6, nobody needed to go on that motorway anymore so it's basically the quietest motorway in the country and it, oh. and it hasn't been updated it's just a kind of two-lane motorway it doesn't have any of the kind of paraphernalia of the modern motorway like the gantry signs and and all the kind of modern signage and the chevrons and everything so yeah. when you drive on it it really well first of all it's very very quiet oh. um, but when you drive on it it really does you do get a sense of what it must have been like to drive on the you know the Preston bypass yeah. the, the first motorway in, in 19 58 so it's like it's like driving on a in a time capsule really mm, it's like a her heritage motorway I mean the national trust will take it over in time that's right well there was a sort of april fool mm. a few years ago the bbc had a sort of um news story where they where they claimed that it was being sort of preserved as a heritage motorway and you could only drive on it if you had a, a vintage <laughs> car but it was obviously it wasn't true mm. so how far do you think or how deep do you think the love affair with motorways and this brave new future actually went because it it seems to have been really of quite a short duration yeah i mean it was a gradual thing really i don't, I don't know when you would say that uh, that kind of disillusionment set in because uh, it, there wasn't a kind of one moment when you could say that's when people fell out of love with motorways and in fact even before the m1 was built there were some protests people some, sometimes people think that uh, 
the Rhodes protests began in the 90s with, mm. you know, Twyford Down and the Newbury Bypass, mm. but there were people protesting about the route of the M1 in 1958. So it was, it was a very, very gradual thing, I think, um, where, where people sort of gradually got disillusioned. I think, I think the real thing was when the motorway started to cut into the cities, um, mm. uh, the kind of urban motorways, because the M1, when it was built, it was basically through open countryside and it wasn't particularly sort of uh, contentious, the land that it was cutting through. So I think it was just when it started to affect people's houses and they, they could actually see the, the motorway that, and it was, it was kind of part of their lives that they started to, to protest against it. I mean, one thing that the book makes really clear is that, that roads really attract myths of all sorts. I mean, throughout the, the whole sweep of the book, whether it's about gangsters reputed to be buried in, you know, in the, the fabric of flyovers or tales about what happens when people's sat-navs go wrong or, you know, the secret logic that underpins the road numbering systems. Why, why, are, why are myths so attracted, do you think, to roads? Well, that, that was the surprising thing in a way. I, I sort of thought there wouldn't be a mythology surrounding, certainly around British roads. I mean, if you think about the sort of American road, which had all this sort of mythology and iconography attached to it, mm. sort of, you know, the sort of two-lane blacktop sort of disappearing into the distance. But I was, I was quite, quite surprised to find a lot of that kind of mythology, although it's often it's a kind of mythology of tedium, isn't it? It's a sort yeah. of... Uh, you know, the myths about the motorists who drive around the M25 and can't get off and they sort yeah. of drive around it in perpetuity. So um, I think it's just that roads are maybe not something people get passionate about, but they're something that, that everybody uses and they're something that people do get kind of anxious about or they get frustrated about. So all this kind of, uh, all this, all these kind of anxieties sort of circulate around them. Yes, I, I love the way that you describe road rage as a sort of stress ball to absorb our wider sense of fear and resentment about driving on our, our roads. So, I mean, clearly there are a lot of emotions built into to our, the way we react to, to traveling on roads. Yeah, I mean, but road rage is probably nothing new. I mean, there's all, even in the sort of 19... 1900s, you know, people were complaining about the behaviour of motorists to each other. But, but yes, I think I think it's um, certainly when road rage became this kind of media panic in the mid 90s, it does often refract other anxieties. And of course, you know, in the sort of late, uh, sort of early 90s, which is when road rage became a sort of media phenomenon. There was a lot of other anxiety about roads. It wasn't just simply motorists behaving badly to each other. There were there were roads protests. There was uh, a lot of the motorways that the first motorways were starting to fall apart. So they were starting to have to be repaired. So you mm. got a lot of contraflows and things like that. So so I think yeah, they often uh, that that rage is is often an expression of something else, a kind of general frustration about roads. I thought it was really interesting. Another of the subtexts in the book, perhaps particularly in the the earlier years, was that class underpinned a lot of assumptions about our attitudes to roads, whether it was the peer who killed someone driving on the wrong side of the road and, and got off, or whether the, 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 the typeface used for, for motorway signs was you know, un, unbearably vulgar. There were lots of sort of class assumptions built into to how things were done. Um, cer certainly in the early days, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, probably before the First World War, motoring would have been a very rich person's hobby. So, mm. uh, and they, they based a lot of those, those kind of aristocratic motorists sort of thought they had the sort of right of the road really you mentioned the the, the case of the, the the earl who knocked someone down on the on the wrong side of the road that the, the rule of the road wasn't very clear then whether you drove on the left and the right and and motorists tended to think they sort of had had the 
the right to drive anywhere because they would have been the sort of rich motorists as opposed to the sort of uh, you know people people kind of driving carts and things like mm. that people, maybe farmers kind of uh, with sort of cows and sheep so and I think that sort of that that dissipated as it went on as motoring became a kind of mass a sort of mass activity but i think i think there are sort of class assumptions even now in things like um, white van man or mm. kind of assumptions about the about the cars that people drive or in kind of hate hate or of a kind of resentment towards lorry drivers and things like that so so i think those those kind of class assumptions are still there those kind of invidious comparisons that people make on the road joe you say right at the end of the book perhaps we need to think carefully about what we can learn from the history of roads since the beginning of the motorway era and here we are at the, the dawn of a, a, a new government and I wondered I wondered what you thought that the, the main things we do have to think carefully about because we, we, we do clearly have a love-hate relationship with roads. I think the sort of environmental case against roads is obviously pretty unanswerable now I mean everybody knows that the impact they make. I suppose what I wanted to show in the book was just that um, Roads do have a kind of symbolic importance that sometimes um, it means they, they they sometimes get blamed more than other things that also do damage to the environment. I think mm. it's just because they they're just so obvious. It's just a, so, such a dramatic intervention into the landscape, and I think that was why, for example, something like Twyford Down became such a kind of rallying cry because Twyford Down was this massive kind of gash in the landscape mm. and it just it was so obviously just a kind of destructive thing but there are things that are actually do as much damage to the environment like or actually in some cases more like sort of agribusiness and, and mm. um, kind of you know um, industrial farming and things like that but they're not so obvious they don't look they don't look quite the same they don't look as obviously bad for the environment so i suppose what i was trying to do was just kind of disentangle that you know i'm not i'm obviously i'm not a policy maker i can't mm. decide whether roads get built but i just wanted to sort of disentangle the the kind of huge symbolic investments we have in roads from the from the reality joe tell me do you have a favorite stretch of road that you particularly respond to as a driver or as a, a walker or, a, or any other way well, I actually do like, it uh, might be a little bit perverse, but I actually do like the, the first section of the M1 because it's very, very straight. It's very, it's almost like a sort of American road and you mm. can sort of see see straight ahead. I was actually brought up, though, near the Snake Pass, which is the, the very opposite of that. It's a kind of winding, sort of hilly road, that, like the kind you get in the sort of motoring adverts. So I like them both, really. I like the sort of traditional driving roads, but I also like the sort of mundane motorways as well. Joe Moran. On Roads is out now in paperback. You can find full details on the Blackwell website at blackwell.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast. So till next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.